0: Welcome to the Canadian Sports Medicine Review Podcast, where we inform, educate, and inspire physicians on topics relating to sports and exercise medicine. Your hosts today are Dr. Janet McMorty and Dr. Rich Tranome with the Canadian Academy of Sport and Exercise Medicine, Canada's authoritative expert on sports and exercise medicine.
1: Today we're talking about exertional rhabdomyolysis and we are pleased to have Dr. Courtney K. Lam joining us today. Dr. Courtney K. Lam is a physician who is board certified in both physical medicine and rehabilitation and sports medicine with the American Board of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Uh, she's a current member of the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehab and the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. After training in the United States, Dr. Lamb has now returned to the Muskoka region to practice physical medicine and rehabilitation with a focus on musculoskeletal medicine in an active population. Welcome, Dr. Lamb. Thank you for Welcome. joining
0: us.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
0: It seems really weird. Like uh, Janet is in Aurelia, and I'm in Huntsville, and you're in Aurelia. That we're <laughs> we're, we're in very close proximity, but so far away. Very true. <laughs> um, so, I guess the the for the learners and um, people just getting into sport and exercise medicine, it's really good to go over what exertional rhabdomyolysis is in a nutshell. So, what's what's your elevator pitch um, with respect to this?
2: So, exertional rhabdomyolysis, which I'll call exertional rhabdo, because uh, it's a little easier to say, really hinges on. Strenuous physical activity where you run out of ATP, particularly in striated muscles. And the problem with that is that you start to get some potassium, uh, sodium pump, and calcium pump dysfunction, which leads to the cell actually necrosing and releasing its intracellular contents. And that's a problem because it leads to downstream effects, particularly cardiac implications and also renal cell issues. And so the reason we discuss this is because while it is rare, it can be a life threatening complication of intense physical activity.
1: All right. So I've definitely heard more about exertional rhabdo in the past five or so years in popular media and social media and on the news media from people doing kind of more higher impact physical activity um, and getting rhabdo and people talking about it in gym situations. It's now become a bit of a you know buzzword or a slang word. More people have heard about it, basically, is what I'm trying to get at. Are there any specific sports or physical activities that you've noticed people tend to get the rhabdo more often?
2: Certainly. So we know that there are some sports that are a little bit more high risk just because of the characteristics that are inherent to that activity. And then we also realize that there's things that are inherent a little bit more in the athlete. So it's helpful to think of it in two broad categories. When we think of things specifically in sports, we often think of Um, higher intensity endurance things are ultra marathoners or people who are doing distance cycling. And because it hinges on that ATP depletion, it's not hard to imagine how these people are running out of fuel, but we can also see it in really repetitive exercises of one body segment. So weightlifters, particularly those that are doing eccentric contractions, because that's a lot more metabolically demanding. And so we can see it in a whole body experience with people doing this prolonged exercise, or we can see it in something that's just in one body segment and Repetitive.
0: Yeah, I think that's the thing that people don't really appreciate um, because it is it's when there's a novel overexertion in the volume, intensity, or duration. So, you know, the duration and volume might be, you know, uh, an ultra marathon or a long distance triathlon, but equally so is the intensity things. And Yeah, I've seen it as the medical director at the 70.3 here in Muskoka. I've seen it a number of times. And um, one of the things that I found very interesting was the year that we had the greatest number of um, rhabdo cases was actually the year that you wouldn't have predicted. The weather was perfect. It wasn't cool. And people had that perceived, oh, I can go a little bit harder. I can push myself a little bit harder. And they got themselves into trouble with that. And so is that... Do you see that kind of along the spectrum with other sports um, or do you see it a lot with heat or uh, atypical environmental conditions?
2: So you've hit on so many key points with that. Absolutely. It's a novel overexertion for that athlete. And that's a really relative thing. And so we'll sometimes see this in athletes who are coming back, recovering from an injury or an illness or an off season, and they go back to an exercise volume that they previously tolerated. And now they're a little bit deconditioned. So that's relative. Other times we have those extraneous factors, whether it's a race setting and exactly it's, you know, it's a great day. Sure. I'll push myself a little bit more. But we also see other extraneous factors, such as even peer pressure. So we'll see people that get into competitions with others. We see this in the military in basic training, or if people are trying to qualify um, for a physical job da- um, task. Mm-hmm. Or people are trying to meet specific physical requirements for job qualification. Mm -hmm. Um, We also see this in particular in athletes that don't have a lot of autonomy. And so we think of this with our pediatric athletes, where coaches or parents can be pushing them further. But this can also extend to coaches in a training camp situation um, where they're really pushing themselves further. And it doesn't always seem that intuitive you would think there would be some sort of kind of circuit breaker and that, oh gosh, we can't really push ourselves, but athletes can and do push themselves very far into a danger zone.
1: You mentioned a couple, you know, people, patients who are at a bit higher risk, you know, newer um, athletes, people coming back, pediatric patients. Are there any other risk factors um, that you can talk about in say a patient's previous history or anything like that, that would Keep, keep us, you know, have that little red flag going off in our minds about warning these patients they might be at risk for it?
2: Absolutely. So some of those things are going to be with the athlete lifelong. So people that have any sort of history of an underlying autoimmune condition, a metabolic injury, um, athletes that have sickle cell trait we know are at higher risk, but also some short-term things. So for example, if the athlete is dehydrated, they have a bacterial or viral illness, Situations where there's some thermal stress, so if they're either hyperthermic or even hypothermic can cause that as well. And then athletes Mm -hmm. that are using certain medications, whether those are prescribed or something outside of that realm. And in particular, we see that with athletes that are on statins or anticholinergics or even some of the stimulant drugs. But we've also seen it in the literature mentioned with even alcohol, caffeine or cocaine.
1: It's interesting really? you mentioned that <laughs> this is, again, not a sports thing, but I actually saw Rabdo at one of the um, electronic dance music festivals I was the medical <laughs> director at because these some of these like you mentioned the medic the drugs that people use you know they get you in that hyperthermic state and these people are dancing around for you know yeah. 20 hours um and I was like oh my goodness here's my sports <laughs> medicine background coming in this person has exertional rhabdo that's fascinating <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah exactly exactly no, but that it, that led old me old to old kind old of old. wonder you know we talk about rhabdo being so severe, but we kind of throw, I think sometimes interchangeably rhabdo and DOMS or delayed onset muscle soreness. Um, Quickly, what's the difference between the two? Are there um, pretty specific definitions?
2: You can think of it as existing a little bit more on a spectrum. So when we talk about having that muscle breakdown, that is physiologic and that's what we expect will happen and contributes to um, the DOMS or the delayed onset of muscle soreness where we start to cross over into that rhabdo territory is more when the systems downstream are failing. So our kidneys can't keep up with the myoglobin that's being released, or our heart is now having to adjust to a little bit more of those electrolyte disturbances. And so in terms of when the athlete presents to you, that's your job as a clinician to recognize, gosh, is this, you know, we've had a hard workout, we're doing okay, take some rest, or are we getting into a danger zone? Mm -hmm. And One of the important markers that we look at for that um, is creatinine kinase, or CK. And overall, we know that there's differences in the levels between gender and age from standardized norms. We can also sometimes see a little bit higher baseline for athletes, and some of the papers have looked at that. So generally, what we accept is about five times the upper limit of normal for CK for that athlete, depending on their age Mm -hmm. and gender, when we really start to say, oh gosh, we are crossing over into... Um, rhabdo territory. Another lab that you're going to look at is doing a urinalysis, if you're suspicious of this. In particular, you're going to see heme, but no red blood cells on the urinalysis, and that's because of the myoglobin spilling over into the urine. You would also want to look at some other labs as well, if you're suspicious of this, to make sure that we're not um, having, like, elevated potassium or buon-creatinine uptrending. Um, but once we start getting lab abnormalities, that's when we say, oh, gosh, we're really in the rhabdo territory.
0: Yeah, I think, like, the taking a sort of a step back from that, there's, there's a lot of... Um, people that work in emergency rooms or, or you know, internal medicine, they, they, they may not r- recognize or realize um, that, you know, exertional rhabdo is what they're experiencing unless they've got the clinical radar up. Um, because from what I understand, exertional rhabdo doesn't necessarily present at the time of the exertional task. It's, you know, day or days later that it can show up and people can get into really a lot of trouble because they don't recognize the signs and then uh the the you know physician on the other end don't recognize the symptoms or or the you know clinical cluster so what would you like what would you be your salient okay you guys have to watch out for this from the non sports medicine person
2: you're absolutely right in saying that this can be a little bit of an elusive thing to diagnose because we know that the CK can actually peak at 12 to up to 96 hours later. And so mm-hmm. having that high clinical suspicion is really important. And so to our colleagues in um, the emergency room or in internal medicine or family medicine, having a really high suspicion for this and recognizing where that branch point is. So if someone comes in and their labs are okay, but they, you think, gosh, you know, This seems a little bit out of proportion to what I would expect for delayed onset muscle soreness, recognizing Mm -hmm. that you need a really good follow-up plan because you need to keep repeating those labs. If this is someone where you're not going to have good follow-up with them, you're concerned that they're not as um, reliable to follow-up, you might want to consider inpatient um, admission to keep trending that, particularly if they have some of the higher risk factors. Mm
0: -hmm. But you're
2: absolutely correct in saying that you really do need a high degree of suspicion and the ability to follow this to make sure that you're out of that window.
1: And speaking of, of you know, signs and symptoms, we kind of joke laughingly. I know I have with some of my patients about, <laughs> oh yeah, you were peeing tea after that race. or you're <laughs> peeing Coca-Cola after that race. Um, is that a good enough si- symptom, like uh, that Coca-Cola urine or tea urine to be like, yep, that's rhabdo?
2: So if it's present, certainly I would pay attention to that. But that actually only occurs in about 50% or so of patients. So it's not completely reliable. So if your athlete's coming in saying, "Ah, oh, no, it's fine. No, I don't have tea colored urine that that really isn't getting you out of the woods. Um, so mm-hmm. helpful when it's there. But if it's not, that's not the end of the story.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and even with that, the you know, people can have that yeah. without the rhabdo, like it can have a... Have a iced tea looking <laughs> here and a little a little lighter, not quite the Coca-Cola, but, you know, it can be present after an acute exertional event as well. Right. Mm-hmm.
2: It's helpful in that it usually encourages patients to seek medical attention. So particularly mm-hmm. in our athletes that are used to having muscle soreness are used to feeling fatigued. Um, it's easier for them to be like, oh gosh, you no, know, a hard workout. But typically once they see urine changes, they recognize, oh dear, something's wrong and they will seek out medical attention. So from the clinical side, it's helpful in getting people to present.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: That'd be, it's usually pretty alarming, I would say. <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah.
0: You well, would hope it, it yeah, would yeah. be enough of a trigger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so having like the, having the uh, spidey sense or your clinical antenna up is really important because there's, Quite a quite a number of potential complications that can arise from this that are not super benign. Uh, like, you know, can you touch on that?
2: So I kind of say that rhabdo hangs out with some unfriendly friends and that things that are associated in the cascade downwards is really a who's who of things that go sideways quickly and they can happen simultaneously. So one of the things that's important to link in your mind, especially for those clinicians that are seeing it, is compartment syndrome. And so rhabdo often goes hand in hand with compartment syndrome secondary Mm -hmm. to that muscular edema. And it's easy to be a little bit thrown off because you think, okay, you know, they have muscle pain with passive and active um, movement. You think, all right, well, they have rhabdo. And then their CK is elevated. You think, okay, right, well, they have rhabdo. Um, And so this is another cause for you to really consider trending that CK. And if it continues to go up when it should be going down, you really need mm-hmm. to be have that hair trigger to say, gosh, is this a compartment syndrome, and be repeating your physical exam so I'm less comfortable once that muscle starts getting tense as opposed to a little bit of a softer edema. Other things that can be happening at the same time are, of course, the cardiac arrhythmias that we've mentioned. And so having a low threshold to obtain EKG would be recommended. And then, of course, renal failure is one of the really big complications from this. And it's really interesting how, again, rhabdo is all about the layers, that we get so many different effects. And so when you have that cell lysis, you release that myoglobin. And myoglobin is filtered out um, and then, to a certain extent, reabsorbed. But once you start getting acidic urine, particularly pH less than 56 the fairy hemate starts to dissociate from that. So when we talk about the sequelae, in particular for acute renal failure, there are several insults that we can layer on. So if we think about myoglobin, and we had mentioned earlier having myoglobin in the urine, it's usually filtered out in the glomeruli and then reabsorbed back in the proximal tubules. But once you get that acidic environment, specifically a pH less than 5.6, the ferrihemate starts to dissociate from that myoglobin molecule. And so you get that oxidative stress and a direct renal cell injury. Um, On top of that, we're often dealing with people who are dehydrated. And so what happens is the dehydration increases that water reabsorption in the tubules, and that further concentrates the myoglobin in the urine, which causes these casts. And so you get an acute tubular necrosis. So now we've got the myoglobin casts are blocking things. We've got the iron that's causing that oxidative stress. And then on top of that, particularly if athletes continue exercising, we also get vasoconstriction um, when they're exercising. And usually this is a good thing. So we have a preferential arterial or vasoconstriction in response to exercise because we're shunting blood away to mm-hmm. the working muscles. Um, but it's important to realize this is a nonlinear relationship. So when you're at about 50% of your VO2 max, um, you have about a thirty percent decrease in your renal blood flow, but once oh. you bump that up to sixty-five percent of your VO2 max, which many of our athletes comfortably hit or exceed, you've decreased your renal blood flow by about seventy-five percent. Wow! So you have this oh. poor, yeah, right? And so you have this poor kidney that's struggling along, trying to do its best, and now on top of it, uh, we're decreasing the blood flow to it. And where you really get into trouble with that. It's particularly in athletes that are having two-a-day practices or they're in a training camp. And so they may have been on kind of on the borderline from recovering from that first insult. And then when they keep pushing it and they can get into a little bit more danger. Hmm. Now so I mainly
1: practice an outpatient sports medicine. And the people who I've seen with exertional rhabdo or I think they are, are usually extremely sick. And I've seen them either in the emergency department or, you know, kind of event medical tent and ship them immediately to the emergency department. But I'm just thinking about like, are we missing people who have this? Like, are they, you know, I'm just picturing some of my athletes who like you were describing two-a-day practices, just kind of going home being like, oh, I'm just really tired. Like, is there a role for like an outpatient sports medicine doctor, family doctor, to do things like outpatient CK levels, or are we missing people?
2: I suspect that we probably are missing people, exactly what you're saying. There's a tendency where these people present once they're really having some dire straits, as it were. Um, And this is where it can be really helpful to integrate a sports medicine physician into those teams earlier on to prevent that. Part of what we know of preventing this is really having a planned, intentional training program so that we're not overexerting athletes and getting into that point. But it's also really helpful if you have eyes on them to be a little bit more suspicious in terms of either, you know, just kind of putting eyeballs on your athlete saying, you know, they're not quite looking themselves. They're having a little bit lower output in practice, whatever their sport may be, and saying, hey, maybe we should be grabbing some labs and keeping a closer eye on you sooner. I guess
1: like getting to know your athlete, right? That would be a huge, huge benefit to the team. I can just imagine, right? Like if you're an emergency room doc and you've never met this athlete before, it's tougher than somebody who, yeah, you know what they're like usually at practice. That's a really good point.
0: So, you know, we've identified the person that's got it. What Like there's two ways to go about it with, you know, with treatment would it be um, uh, when, what are the treatment you know, principles, what, what are kind of the general recommendations? And I'm sure that there's the, the decision that the clinician has to make with respect to treating orally or as an outpatient or, um, you know, admitting them with an inpatient. What, where does that decision lie?
2: So there's a lot of different recommendations broadly out there in civilian literature, but one of the guidelines that I really like to use actually comes from a military background. So I was Mm -hmm. really fortunate enough to work um, in my training in the VA system in the U.S., um, which is for the Veterans Affairs or for our military patients. And there's actually the Uniformed Services University, which is also working with CHAMP or the Consortium for Health and Military Performance that specifically has put out guidelines for this because the military has, of course, a vested interest in this from all of their basic recruits, and uh, they're really, they refer to them as war fighters in their guidelines. But the specific guideline is the clinical practice guideline for the management of exertional rhabdomyolysis in warfighters, and they periodically update this. It's currently in a 2020 edition. And the great news for clinicians is that this is a free resource that's available um, if you go to their website, HPRC-online, which is the Human Performances Resource Center. And what I like about these guidelines is that it gives you a clear framework to work within while still allowing you to customize things. So overall, when someone is presenting in front of you and you say, my gosh, this person has this history of strenuous uh, muscle pain, they may or may not have that tea-colored urine – the first question you actually want to ask yourself is, does this person have a heat illness? Because that is going to require your immediate attention because that can be more rapidly life-threatening. And then they recommend us that your next step, making sure you do your history and physical examination, but the branch point is going to hinge on that CK. So if they at that point have a CK level that's greater than five times their upper limit of normal, then we're calling it right off the bat as exertional rhabdo. And if it's not, they're saying, hey, we should have a plan to be checking in with this person because they clearly presented um, with risk factors for this. And so we should be doing some urinalysis, a few more labs and checking in with them every 24 to 72 hours to make sure that we're not missing the peak of that CK. If right off the bat, they're already at that five times the upper limit of normal, you want to evaluate for some of the high risk markers. So particularly if their CK is above 20,000, you have any concern for compartment syndrome or acute kidney injury, um, if you see any metabolic or electrolyte abnormalities, if you know that they have a sickle cell trait, or if you don't really have good follow-up, those would be indications to consider inpatient um, treatment at that point. If they have a high-risk marker, there is still some argument to be made that in the right patient, you could consider um, outpatient therapy. Again, close follow-up, keeping an eye on them really reliable, Um, But once you have those high-risk markers, you really want to be considering inpatient therapy as a clinician. To go then to your question in terms of treatment, one of the most important things is aggressive IV hydration. And when we say aggressive, we do mean aggressive in that uh, the goal of your hydration is actually to have 200 milliliters or more of urine output, output per hour. And so when you do the math on that, that's about four. 8 liters over 24 hours and it's important oh. to right. <laughs> it's <laughs>
0: <the> system at- <laughs> oh my
2: goodness exactly exactly
0: <laughs> being um, like a racehorse takes on a whole new meeting
2: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. absolutely and so that is your goal and you're going to continue that until you see the ck start to trend down so hitting that urine output level is not your goal continuing that until the CK starts to turn down is your goal. And it's like we had talked about before, it's really flushing out the system and helping to get rid of um, the myoglobin cast. And another thing you can can consider is um, actually alkalinizing the urine, because that's going to reduce that free hemate dissociation and reduce that direct uh, renal cell injury as well. The, so once you've got that um, sorted and recognize too that, it can be a little bit perilous to be treating people, particularly if you have more of a weekend warrior athlete with IV fluids that are that high. So if you're a little bit concerned about fluid overloading them, this can quickly get to an ICU situation where you want to have a little bit better control of your eyes and O's and be monitoring their cardiac status as well. Which brings me to my next point, that it's really important to be monitoring cardiac status. So we talked about renal being initially our focus, but recognize that monitoring labs, particularly the hyperkalemia, um, which can, of course, predispose you to arrhythmias and then also get grabbing the EKG to keep monitoring that as well. And you want to be correcting those electrolyte abnormalities. Sometimes, unfortunately, patients will get to the point where dialysis can be needed in the short term to help deal with those if they're really refractory to your usual um, lines of therapy for that. And so recognizing that that's the envelope of treatment options that we're dealing with, and it unfortunately can get to that point. But as a clinician, you should recognize that that can be part of the treatment.
0: Mm -hmm. And just looking at this algorithm in that uh, 2020 document, it's really good. Um, We're going to include a link to this in the show notes for our listeners. So I would highly, highly recommend that you go and look at it, read it, print out the algorithm and keep that in your back pocket or somewhere handy. Mm -hmm.
2: I think it's great. Um, As we've mentioned, it's a great framework that really guides Mm -hmm. several different things. So it's guiding the clinician in their algorithm one section on, gosh, this person has just presented, am I inpatient? Are we outpatient? How am I following this up? And then it also has algorithm two for how am I managing this as an inpatient? And what are the branch points and some of the decisions? But it still leaves a lot of room for that clinical judgment and individualizing it. Another uh-huh. point that they also have that's helpful for your handy all-in-one um, document is also, what do we do next? So uh-huh. particularly with um, the war fighters that they're mentioning or your high-intensity athletes, the next question is of first going to be, okay, well, when can I go back to exercise? Is this going to uh-huh. happen Okay, And those are some of the questions that it can help guide you through. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was
1: kind of wondering about, you know, we talk a lot about Um, you know, counseling and education towards our patients, especially in an outpatient sports medicine practice. Is there anything uh, that you'd recommend either that we can, you know, provide education-wise to athletes before, say, an event to reduce their risk, or even somebody like ourselves, like Rich and I, who've done race and race directing and whatnot, um, to, again, try and reduce the risk for these athletes?
2: Education is really going to be your friend in this one, Um, and that's where having a good relationship with athletes that you're taking care of can be easier. At a race, it is a lot more challenging, especially these mass participation events where you can have athletes from all over. You haven't necessarily had the opportunity to provide education up front, and you can get people from all over the place speaking different languages, and so that can really make it a lot more complex when you're trying to get the word out that way. I would say that in that situation, having really well-trained medical staff that are monitoring for this, making sure that you're having adequate hydration, um, if you have an opportunity to have a climate-controlled medical tent, that can be helpful as well when you're taking care of these athletes, particularly, as we've mentioned, the heat illness, um, that can often go along with it as well. Um, but that is one of the the battles we face on RAVDO is it is hard to get the word out ahead of time at these events.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've um, you know along that same line, with the with the Iron here in Huntsville it's um annually i am privileged to have the ability to talk to all of the athletes beforehand so that they um it's not like they get a document in their inbox that they have to read it's you know front and center and they can they they can put a put a a face to the name of who they want to avoid <laughs> gotcha. So I guess you know is there is there some more um, you know is there more tangible information or some protocols that people can follow with respect to returning to you know play on their sport?
2: Yeah. So there's two things that we really want to consider here. And one is how are we guiding the athletes back? But two is stratifying and saying, gosh, is this a high risk athlete of having this happen or is this a low risk athlete for having this happen again? Um, And the document that we've been referring to actually does give some parameters on that, which is really helpful. And so if you're going to consider an athlete to be high risk, some of the things you might want to consider are if they have had a persistent CK elevation, so above a thousand for over two weeks. So we've done rest, we've done protocols, which we'll chat about in a second, and that's staying elevated. Uh, If their CK ever gets above 100,000, so it can get quite high. If they have any personal or family history of this happening previously, so this is maybe not their first time with rhabdo, um, if they have any history of recurrent muscle cramps, um, they have significant heat injury, sickle cell trait we've mentioned, any history of malignant hyperthermia, or any athlete that has either a personal or family history of unexplained complications following anesthesia, for example. Mm -hmm. You also want to be aware that they're a little bit higher risk if this was related to drug or dietary um, supplements or medications, because one, you might not have the ability to get them off of that medication, depending on what it's used for, or two, if they're a supplement user, it seems more likely that they're probably going to continue using those supplements overall. You also want to be a little bit more suspicious if the story just doesn't fit with a lot of overload. And so if this is someone that it seems like it was a moderate or low overload that's way out of proportion, that should raise your suspicion as well. The reverse can actually be reassuring. So if you have one team or you have one military unit or one group and several people come in off that same team, surprisingly, that can be more reassuring as a clinician that we have a reason to chalk this up to saying, oh, gosh, this was clearly out of the norm for whatever this team or this Mm -hmm. unit was accustomed to. But if you have one person, you have to ask yourself, gosh, why this one person? What set them up for that?
0: Hmm. Cool.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I don't think I have any other questions. That was so helpful. I mean, I just have in my mind now exactly like, like oh man, how many people have I either missed from this, <laughs> yeah. which hopefully is not very many because you would hope they would present to the Emerge. But again, yeah. I think, you know, when, when, not if we get back to covering events. I mean, I'm definitely yeah. going to be thinking more about this because um, you can kind of clearly see these people in your mind and we've definitely seen yeah. i know rich the same um seen a lot of these people and yeah, yeah. It, you, we hear about it from our i know i have my emergency room colleagues and my icu colleagues the worst of the worst of course but mm-hmm. yeah uh something that is usually quite rare but i've definitely have heard and seen more of it recently i feel
0: yeah
2: this
1: and, is the know, question be
0: important so, okay. sorry go ahead
2: this is the question of it seeing you, but are you seeing yeah. it? Ah, yeah. mm.
0: <laughs> I think that, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, this would be uh, a good show to share with your colleagues uh, that work in intensive care or internal medicine or the emergency room so that they are aware. Um, because, you know, I have with these international events, you know, such as Ironman or the, you know, big marathons th- it's not unusual that somebody finishes a race and they jump in their car and they drive to a different town or they jump on a plane, they fly to a different country. So I think it's, this is valuable information for everybody to know about, uh, not just the sport and exercise medicine physician. So...
2: I think that's a really good opportunity to talk about the collaboration here as well. And so a lot Mm -hmm. of times for sports medicine, we're in outpatient clinics. And so when you have mass participation events, of course, reaching out to your colleagues and saying, hey, I'm available as a resource because we know exertional Mm -hmm. rhabdo is there. And then also having that go back and forth with the outpatient follow-up. So if someone's in an ER or in an ICU, that they can maybe give you a call and say, hey, this person's on my radar. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you be following up with them as an outpatient? But it really does show Athletes in general get themselves into a little bit different situations and they can present differently and so sports medicine physicians are really well positioned to collaborate with other fields to take care of our athletes mm-hmm.
1: yeah absolutely the other yeah, question then, then becomes oh,
0: no i was gonna say you know and so, uh, some of the times athletes well not sometimes a lot of the times athletes see themselves as infallible or resilient right and so they're like you know, this this won't happen to me, or or they'll get the symptoms and they'll be like, oh, this is just normal. Mm-hmm. Right, so,
2: and I think a huge part of that is partnering with the mind of the athlete. And so, athletes mm-hmm. are people that like to be really strategic. And so, particularly with the education part of this, is that we're positioning this as setting ourselves up for athletic success by avoiding these things. So, rabdo mm-hmm. can be a really big setback. And so, how are we designing our training? How are we planning our race? And what are those parameters that we're you know, setting out our training protocols for so that we don't get ourselves in this situation. But recognizing that if we do, there are ways that we can help guide people back. Um, And that's, I think, something else that we could mention in this podcast as well. The paper that we keep referencing um, (laughs) does a great job of having some guidelines. And I haven't seen a lot of those in civilians that are as specific. And so the Uh paper specifically breaks it down into a, a phase one, a phase two, and a phase three. And so now, if again, they're landing in your outpatient clinic and you think, my gosh, how do we get them back? Um, athletes like guidelines and like having a training program. And so having these parameters where we're saying, okay, so in in phase one, we're not doing anything that's strenuous. We want to be in a climate controlled area. Now is the time to rest and we're going to be recovering, focusing on oral hydration and repeating some labs. Um, Once we get... Thinking about moving to phase two um, of things, we want to make sure that their CK has dipped below that five times the upper limit of normal and their urinalysis should be normal and they should otherwise be feeling okay, um, asymptomatic at rest. So when they get into phase two, this is the opportunity that they can just start some light outdoor activity. We're not doing anything that's strenuous and it really needs to be self-guided. So this is not something where we want athletes to be joining their team, their regiment, or other things, just taking things at their own pace to see how it's going. You do want to make sure that you have someone supervising the athlete when they're in phase two, uh, in case they're getting overexerted in terms of one, monitoring to say, hey, you look like you're pushing it a little bit too more, but then two, just from a safety standpoint, to have someone around as well. Um, And then when we're having athletes do that, we want to be checking in with them about every week or so to make sure that things are going all right. And once they're getting to the point where they're not having any symptoms, they're not having, you know, any concerns that way, then we can start to move them back and do a graduated return to play, recognizing that they are going to have some deconditioning. So once we say, okay, yep, you're good to go, it's not joining back to where you were, but it's a gradual uptake um, Mm -hmm. from this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I can, I can imagine that would be tough, obviously tough for athletes anytime you have to pull back, but yeah, I agree with you athletes, especially the athletes who are in, you know, things like Ironman sports, cycling, they love the data, they love protocol. They love, you know, following something like that and the recognition that this is going to make you stronger out, you know, after we go through these phases um, usually can be hopefully enough to motivate them to, to follow the rules. (laughs)
2: Exactly. Exactly. They do well with that framework and clear guidelines of what the cutoff is. It's not this endlessly sit on the couch or that sort of thing. So I think athletes often feel set adrift with that as people who like to have a lot of that structure. And so it's really helpful to have a consistent framework with clear
0: goals. Yeah, and yeah. it gives them hope too, right? Like, yeah. Well, I don't think I've got any more questions. Do you have any more questions uh, for mm. Dr. Jen? Yeah. No, this has
1: been fantastic.
0: Yeah. Cool. Thank you so very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us on the Chasm podcast. Um, and I look forward to seeing you in person someday.
2: <laughs> thank you for having me. Likewise.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and thank you to all of our listeners for uh, being a part of this. And so, uh, if you enjoyed this, subscribe to our channel. Copy the link and share it with your friends on social media. And um, make sure that you look at uh, at the show notes for all of the added information that we'll include in there. And we'll see you next time.